Welcome to the Game Changers Podcast, where we connect trending, evidence-based information to your pharmacy practice. Don't forget to claim your CE after listening. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Game Changers Podcast. I am not your host, Jake Geldo. Our esteemed host, Jeff Wall, is actually on assignment somewhere else. And so I'll be pitch hitting for him in today's conversation. And we're really, really excited for our guest today. As we've seen in the news and just everything that's been happening in the last almost couple of years or so, there's been a lot of impact on women's health uh, in the U.S. And, and when we look at a burden of disease, maternal and, and fetal care is something that we need to continue to strive to improve from a public health perspective in the U.S. And so I'm very fortunate enough to have a, a, an amazing person joining us today. Uh, so Dr. Erin Rainey, welcome to today's podcast. Well, thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to be talking to you about this important topic. Awesome. Thank you. Erin, I don't know if any of our listeners have ever met you in the past, so do you mind sharing a little bit about your expertise in this area? Sure. I'm a professor of pharmacy practice at Midwestern University College of Pharmacy in Glendale, Arizona, and my background and training is in family medicine and working in ambulatory care, which involves care of women and men across the lifespan. So I have a lot of clinical experience working with contraceptive choices, but also postmenopausal care as well. Um, I have also taught our reproductive and postmenopausal topics in the classroom to pharmacy students for over 20 years. And, and there's been so much change in, the, in that period of time, but it remains an exciting area. Awesome. Thank you. And it's, it's a ever evolving area as well. If you really think about it, you know, traditionally speaking, we always talk about two classes of medication, those with prescriptions and those over the counter or OTC. Occasionally we have BTC or behind the counter. Uh, most notably would probably be something like pseudoephedrine, but we did see that uh, with the plan B product for a while as well, where it's only available by a pharmacy. And so, you know, even though BTC is not a, an official designation of classification and we don't really look at, at drugs getting approved in that area, we tend to see prescriptions or over-the-counter. And that really sets up kind of today's conversation is that there's been a lot of conversation with the Food and Drug Administration to increase availability of hormonal contraceptions to persons of all ages across the U.S., uh, specifically identifying some hormonal contraceptions that can be over-the-counter designations so that people can buy them essentially everywhere, including you could almost say gas stations, because I've seen Aleve and, and ibuprofen at, at gas stations. Um, so that's not really what I'm encouraging right now, but that's just, you know, <laughs> to get us to think about where availability could be. And so my first kind of question to to Aaron to help us kind of understand is, you know, when we think about contraceptive care that is predominantly over the counter, you know, what is currently available and what is the FDA talking about and why is it so different? Yeah, I mean, I think for accessibility purposes, um, over the counter contraception, it includes our internal and external condoms, probably most popular. And we have spermicides available in foams and gels and various formulations. In the past, the contraceptive sponge was available. It's um, not under, it's not being manufactured right now. Uh, so we also have the emergency contraception products that contain levonorgestrel. And so from the standpoint of being over the counter, that would be our, our most current listing, I guess, of our options. Now that the idea of having a hormonal contraceptive 
that is um, not in the category of emergency contraception is, is a new idea. So it's a very exciting um, element that's being investigated or debated at FDA now. The decision may be later this summer about a progestin-only oral contraceptive available OTC. Awesome. Okay. And so I think you, you, you called out at the very end of that, that statement, the key thing that jumps out to me, which is progestin-only. So what the heck does that mean in terms of efficacy around hormonal contraception? Because as a, as a community pharmacist, I don't tend to dispense progestin-only birth control. Yeah, I think that you make a great point there. When we look at our what we consider the birth control pill and our oral contraceptives in general, the most common used is our combined oral contraceptives, which would have an estrogen and a progestin. Uh, we have uh, for decades, in fact, since I think 1973, the norgestrel was approved as a, what we uh, traditionally called the mini pill, and it just contains a progestin. And uh, right now under the debate with FTA and, and approval for OTC is the norgestrel product. Um, so that is progestin only. Um, when we consider the differences, um, our, all of our hormonal contraceptives as a, a grouping have high efficacy with perfect use, maybe less than 1% unintended pregnancy rate. It drops to about 7% when we look at uh, typical use, uh, but that's very different than kind of our condoms and spermicides that might be uh, between 15 and 25% and unintended pregnancy rate. Uh, so either or, progestin only or um, combined products have a, a higher efficacy rate than, than what is available OTC at this time. I think that's, that's really good to know that, you know, and so this isn't on one of our questions that I asked you earlier when we were thinking about the framing of this, but I'm going to throw it out there anyways. You know, so if, if a patient is on a hypothetical OTC progestin only birth control, do they still need to use another method like a condom? I love that question because one of the most important counseling points, I think, with any hormonal contraceptive, whether it's dispensed by prescription or a non-prescription option, is that these do not protect against sexually transmitted infections. So if someone is at risk, uh, that you know every individual profile is different, we absolutely would recommend the addition of an internal or external condom for protection from STIs particularly. So we want the, the public to know that an OTC hormonal contraceptive in whatever form is approved, that that is not uh, going to protect against STIs and additional barrier methods may be needed. We also would recommend the use of a condom as a backup method if there is a missed pill or missed dose. Our progesterone-only products differ in the, the window of missed pills, and I, I might just talk about that for a second, compared to our estrogen and progestin products. So typically, uh, we have about a 24-hour window of, of use. We want the timing of these products to be every day at the same time. Um, with the estrogen and progesterone products, we have um, up to about a 24-hour window of a missed pill as we can then double up on the next and keep going. Uh, there's a three-hour window with these progestin-only mini pills. And so the timing of use is very, very important. Um, and so if someone does have, the, the is taking their dose more than three hours after it was intended um, on a daily basis, the use of a backup method like a condom would be recommended. So the pharmacist could be an integral part of making sure that 
handling that quote missed dose um, with that short window of time would be appropriate if patient's sexually active and use that backup method. So you, you pretty much just uh, put the nail in the coffin for selling this at gas stations because I don't really foresee uh, and any attendant making sure that that counseling point is is addressed appropriately. Right. Uh, to, to dig a little bit deeper into it, because I think that this is a, a crucial aspect of a progesterone-only pill. You know, let's say that for those that don't know, I, I identify as male and, and I'm on the, because you're only hearing my voice, I'm going to say that I identify as male. And I'm about to say, like, if I take the pill every, t every day at 6 p.m., right? Like, that, that's not me, but let's, I'm your hypothetical patient. I take the pill every day at 6 p.m. Is it three hours? So, 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. or is it 6 p.m. plus or minus three hours or is it plus or minus one and a half? Like what's the window? Can I take it early or do I have to take it at six? Like how does that play out practically speaking? I'm going out tonight uh, to a bookstore and dinner and, and I'm not going to be home. Can I take my tablet at 530? Yeah, so I think overall um, that 5.30 versus 6 is not what we're talking about, but if we do have a time of day that's planned, we want the patient to select the most appropriate timing that can be the same time every day. Um, at, after we establish a 24-hour window, if it goes be another three hours beyond that, so if you're supposed to take it at 6 p.m. and now it's 10 p.m. and you ha have missed that by an hour, the chance of what we'd call breakthrough ovulation starts increasing. And if a patient is sexually active, then we will, a backup method is pre, uh, like a condom is recommended so that there would be the best efficacy of the product. Uh, so I think the, the key point when a patient is selecting a product, uh, whether it's combined or progestin only, is to choose a time of day where there isn't a lot, lot of fluctuation. Dinner time might not be the best uh, we, when we eat dinner every, every day at a different time, but setting a timer and having a mechanism for tracking so that 24 hours means 24 hours and, and missed, pill, um, missed pills are, are less often. I did wanna add that when we talk about progestin-only pills, there is one product called Drospirinone as a progestin-only. It is in a different pattern then our mini pills are what's being debated for OTC. And that's a 24-4 regimen that has an off period of inactive pills. And that has a different missed pill window. So when we talk about progestin oh, products, there's a wide variety now of options, but also a little bit of subtlety in our counseling when we look at product to product. Gotcha. No, that 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 is super helpful to know because we're really identifying that. The other kind of thing that I want to follow up on is you talk about the backup method. How long should we be using a backup method for that missed pill? Yeah, so um, the proposed labeling for the OTC products, I think that's really interesting when you look at something going OTC and having the ability for a, a patient to manage this on their own. And that's the whole goal of an RX to OTC switch. Um, I'll just uh, note that the product labeling is consistent, or the proposed label is consistent with the prescription, and that if there is more than three hours um, since uh, being late in taking the pill, that the backup method would be uh, for the next 48 hours or two days. Uh, so that that's how the labeling reads and, and the product labeling for prescription as well. Um, you know, I think that the key point is that's for one missed tablet. <laughs> then as we get beyond right. that, or if there is a pattern where the timing of use is very erratic, then really we want to switch over to a backup method that then becomes the method, <laughs> if that makes sense. 
because the intended right. use of this is every 24 hours very consistently. You know, and it's interesting because I'm sure people are listening to this and they might be like, wow, you guys are spending a lot of time on the counseling of this proposed over-the-counter product. And it seems a little bit more extensive than, than here's Tylenol. But I think the big thing to recall is that acetaminophen has been over-the-counter for years. And so it is part of our vernacular. We're so used to it. You know, when we think about this, this general transition from prescription to OTC, there's always a learning curve. Imagine the first time that fluticasone nasal spray went prescription to OTC. No patient just grabbed that off the counter and administered it perfectly. There were still counseling that had to happen at the pharmacy for appropriate over-the-counter use. So again, I don't hear anything that anything that I'm hearing right now, to me, isn't necessarily a red flag for why this could not be available over the counter. It's just emphasizing the role of the pharmacy and the pharmacy team to ensuring appropriate use for, for over-the-counter products which kind of gets us into the, the next section. But before we do, I want to take a break for a conversation from our team at CE Impact. Hi, this is Jen Moulton, founder of CE Impact. If you like this podcast, please be sure to subscribe and give us a review. We're growing and the more followers and ratings we have, the more great content we can provide. We appreciate your support to help you connect your learning to practice. All right. So coming back uh, from a really good conversation, we're still joined uh, by our guest, Aaron Rainey, talking about over-the-counter hormonal contraception. Uh, and we spent a lot of time in the first half of today's episode talking about the efficacy and how to, how to talk to patients about appropriate use. So now I want to change over and really think about when would this be contraindicated? You know, because that's another key aspect of good over-the-counter therapy from a pharmacy perspective. We know when we can treat, but we also know when we need to refer. So what kind of question or, you know, high level, what are the contraindications for this type of therapy so that we can start to identify referral pathways? Yeah, I think that with, as you mentioned, with any prescription or a non-prescription product, they're going to be people who are not candidates for that drug. Uh, generally with all hormonal contraceptives, we would rule out pregnancy, uh, make sure that it's not administered during pregnancy. Um, hormone dependent cancers or hormone sensitive cancers like breast cancer, uh, when we think about um, liver disease, and that there's a whole spectrum of liver dysfunction, but um, that would be a, a contraindication. Um, for so for the most part, those are those are our key areas. The the last one that's really mentioned quite often is someone who has abnormal uterine bleeding that hasn't been diagnosed. So we don't want anyone who's who has uh, some different patterns of uterine bleeding. Um, administering hormones that may exacerbate an underlying condition. So that would be, that would be ruled out as well. Gotcha. You know, when I think about contraindications, I'm going to ask you about them in a moment. I think about like diabetes and obesity. So we'll come back to those topics in a second. Um, but I actually wasn't even thinking about pregnancy for some reason, which is very counterintuitive and kind of scary. And I think it, it emphasizes you know, good conversations with our patients and recognizing that we have OTC pregnancy aids and that we should be doing pregnancy tests before initiation of therapy like this and, and making sure that that quote-unquote contraindication, I hate calling pregnancy a contraindication, I guess it does make sense, but it's not a medical condition, right? Um, but it makes sure that we put that top of our mind. So I think that's really crucial, um, particularly for individuals that are establishing uh, care. So going back, though, to, to other traditional contraindications that I personally think about with hormonal contraception, I think about diabetes, I think about obesity, and the increased risk of clots. Is that something we need to be concerned about with an OTC product? 
So this particular OTC um, product that's being proposed as progestin only does have a lower risk of blood clots than an estrogen-containing product. Certainly someone who has underlying vascular disease and obesity and other clotting disorders, uh, something that would be a thrombophilia, uh, would generally, we would want to have them seek medical care for those conditions anyway. And the discussion around the best contraception for them uh, would be best with, of course, their, their provider for those conditions. Uh, another topic that comes up related to blood clot or stroke risk is migraines, uh, especially migraine headaches with aura. Um, while the progestin-only contraceptives may be the preferred hormonal product in those senses, again, it would be advisable that while under care for those conditions, that that individual would also have a good discussion about risk and benefit of hormonal contraceptives. Gotcha. So that makes sense. And thank you for, for helping kind of identify those nuances in, in our hormonal contraceptive therapies and, and risk versus benefits. And so, you know, when you think about the scope of pharmacy practice, I'm down here in Alabama. You mentioned that you're in Arizona. I know in Alabama, I don't necessarily have uh, the authority or ability to, to do pharmacist prescribing of hormonal contraception. I don't know um, about your state and your ability there, but you know, what are your thoughts on pharmacist prescribing of hormonal contraception and how does this play into you know, the proposed OTC therapy, the new scope of practice changes? Like, how, do we, how do we make sense of all of this and, and get a good practice for patients and for pharmacy? Yeah, I think that um, really what we're talking about is access to products. So all of it is improving access. Uh, the pharmacist-directed care is uh, very different. There are about 17 states that can actively implement this, another 10 or so, and this is a moving target for sure, that have uh, legislative approval, but maybe not the rules in place. That's the case in Arizona. It's, um, it's in progress. So there's a lot of movement and positive direction to enable pharmacists to, to direct um, the use of contraceptives. For the most part in those situations, there's a protocol that would be in conjunction with um, other, other healthcare providers, um, a screening tool to take into account medical conditions and the desires of the patient themselves to then decide on the best product. And then in some states, I would say most, have a list of certain contraceptives that a pharmacist can prescribe. Uh, there are a few instances where it's wide, uh, wide open, um, but because that list might contain uh, self-administered contraceptives like either the vaginal ring or the patch or either the combined or progestin-only oral products. Uh, so from that perspective, what an amazing conversation the patient would have with the pharmacist to talk about whether or not they are a good candidate, to emphasize the, the, the need to take every day at the same time, what to do in situations where there's side effects, ruling out contraindications and enhancing care, and just showing and delivering care from the pharmacist in a way that might be surprising to the public that we can have these conversations and our level of knowledge um, is, is contributing in that way. Over-the-counter uh, status is kind of unknown how this will be uh, proposed. Will there be an age restriction? Will there be a desire amongst uh, some of the in sales to put it in uh, behind lock and key, you know, those types of things we don't know yet. And so will the access really be that improved? So I think there's a big debate. Also pricing. 
we don't know uh, about pricing. And so when where a pharmacist is involved under protocol, can work with insurance and, and other pricing over the counter kind of set. Uh, and it opens up a whole world of, of other uh, issues. Um, but either way, whether we're talking about pharmacists uh, uh, directed or OTC, it's improving access, which I think is key. I think that's that's really well put. And I think that that helps kind of, you know, end today's conversation, which is about improving access for women in maternal care. So before we wrap up, do you have any other kind of women's health issues that you've noticed in the news that you think is important for people to, to know about in relation to what we've been talking about today? Uh, I do. I, before we do that, though, I did have a couple of thoughts on, yeah. on some perceptions okay. in the public about maybe what's happening OTC. And I would hope yeah. that, um, and I do have two teenage daughters, and I see in social media and the media about um, the, the pill becoming over-the-counter, and that we want to emphasize and clarify to individuals that these are very different products than they might be receiving by prescription and that there wouldn't be a direct switch if they're on an, an estrogen and progestin product, that this doesn't mean their pill is going over the counter and there might be hundreds of options available to us. So I think that's a, a key point of clarification. And then one other big difference between the two that we hadn't emphasized, but I think from a patient selection and, and um, satisfaction standpoint is the bleeding pattern between these two products. Um, estrogen and progesterone products tend to have a more predictable time of uterine bleeding. And whether that's monthly or every three months, depending on the product, the progesterone only products have a higher incidence of what we call breakthrough bleeding or spotting. And that can be um, something that is uh, unique and different for each individual. But uh, just to emphasize, I think as a final point on that, that the pill being OTC is not really how we'd like it to be uh, thought of in the public. There is one option that might be a great option for some individuals that might be considered as OTC, but the, the individualization of contraception is key, and that's where pharmacists can play the biggest role. Um, so I did want to make sure I emphasized that. No, I think that that's, that's really well put, and, and we, should, we should encourage our colleagues in journalism to now say a pill is available over the counter, not the pill, right? And then I think that that's what you're really expanding upon is that it is it is patient-centered care and one size does not fit all. A pill is now available, but there are other pills still available behind the counter with the pharmacy. Right, right. Um, and then of course you mentioned that reproductive care and reproductive health is in the news quite a bit, of course, politi politically um, and, and in a very intense uh, way. But we did have a recent approval of a product for on the other end of the life spectrum in postmenopausal health, uh, felizonatance, which is a, a product in a new category of drugs for hot flashes or vasomotor symptoms of menopause. So uh, that was just recently within the last month. So I love the idea that uh, within the care for uh, reproductive health and postmenopausal health that we still have um, research and new drug development and discussions about access. Uh, so that's the important part is that this is front and center of, of healthcare and that we keep up with it as, as uh, all the changes occur. Awesome. Any other last words that you want to share with us, Erin? I just appreciate the opportunity to comment and 
the conversation can go much beyond this amount of time, but just opening up the idea that um, when we do see the decision on this OTC product, that this is not the end of the discussion, that uh, we have now a whole responsibility and really an opportunity, I think, to engage in discussions with patients about reproductive health. And uh, if we haven't done so already, informing ourselves as much as we can so that those conversations can impact in the most positive way on the patients who need it the most. Awesome. Well, Erin, thank you so much for, for lending us your expertise and, and being here for today's conversation. You know, this is a very important topic, and I think it's good that we're, we're continuing the dialogue and helping our listeners understand the options available to their patients. I know that, that Jeff usually has a really nice tagline at the end of every episode, and for the life of me, I can never remember it when I'm supposed to say it. So, so like, I want to say, like, good night and good luck, but, like, no, that's another tagline. I shouldn't go down that pathway. <laughs> So I will, I will end with saying thank you all for, for listening, and we're excited for our next episode coming up. Thank you. That's it for this week's episode of Game Changers. CE Impact members, don't forget to claim your CE for today's episode. If you aren't a member, join us at ceimpact.com. We'll talk to you next week for Game Changers Clinical Conversations.